Good morning, church, on this Labor Day. I hope all of you are being lazy and ceasing from your labors. Okay, I got better jokes later. Okay, um, today I'm reading from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl or a basket. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven." Light and salt. In order for them to work, they have to be present. In fact, the key to effectiveness for salt and light is contact. Salt that does not touch the meat or work its way in will not stop the decaying process or flavor anything. Light that does not shine in the darkness is no good to anyone. In fact, it is not light at all. Jesus said, I want you out there in the darkness shining. I want you out there in a dead, rotting world, making contact with it in order to save it. Jesus walked alongside sinful people. He loved them as they were. He ended up where good, decent people weren't supposed to end up, and he was roundly criticized for it. He loved people despite their sinfulness. But there's the other side of the truth which must be emphasized. While the salt is rubbing against the rottenness of this world, it must, Jesus said, maintain its saltiness, its distinctiveness. Jesus said that salt that loses its flavor even is no good to anyone. Salt that does not touch is no good. But salt that is insipid and flavorless is no good either, Jesus said. Jesus identified with the world, but he was never identical with the world. We must never try to escape from the truth that there is a fundamental difference between light and darkness, between secular and spiritual, between Christians and non-Christians, or at least there ought to be. If we ignore or minimize this difference, we will be of little use to God or to the world He's trying to save. We are called to be a radical counterculture to the world around us. We are to show love and make peace in a world riddled with violence. We are to demonstrate and explain truth in a world of utter moral chaos, where almost anything is right anymore. We are to include those the world excludes, the poor, the broken, the oppressed, the lost. This was the New Testament church, a group in which there was Neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. All were under the reign of Christ and under the love and grace of Christ. And every revival of historic proportions in the last 2,000 years has demonstrated the kingdom of God breaking into this world in power. Whether it was the Wesleyan revival and how that shook up the world, or the Azusa Street Revival, and how that shook up the world, or the Moravian Revival, or or the Anabaptists, who are our spiritual forefathers. 
When God broke through, people saw the kingdom coming. They saw it rediscovered, and they saw it made flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit. The church became this radical force for Jesus Christ. And when they did, they shook up the world. The world does not, when the church is truly revived, the world benefits. It is never left the same. Real Christianity rocks the boat. It challenges the status quo of the world's behaviors and values. Remember, the world, even the American world, is under the powers and principalities in high places. And it is critical that Christians do not conform to it. That is, isn't that what Paul said in Romans 12, 1? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. We are not supposed to think like the world. It is critical. We do not blend the kingdoms of men with the kingdom of God and get them confused. The greatest heresy in North American Christianity is the mixing up of the kingdom of America with the kingdom of God. Let me say it plain. They are not the same. They operate by entirely different powers with very different values. We are to challenge the rule of Satan, not be a part of this established order. Stanley Howross, who is one of my favorite writers, he's an ethicist at Duke University. At one point, when, when the Clinton administration was, was in power, uh, at, at, the, the, remember, you know, don't ask, don't tell? At the height of the debate of whether gay folks should be allowed to serve in the military, Howross wrote an op-ed piece in the Charlotte Observer entitled, Why Gays Are Superior to Christians. And in that article, he observed that the military is threatened by gay soldiers, but the military is just fine with Christian soldiers. And he tried to imagine what it would be like if Christians took their own discipleship so seriously that they were seen as a threat too. And they would be so dangerous as to, say the mil as to have the military exclude them also. People said, he said, what if the Christians were dangerous for morale in the barracks. You don't want these people gathering at night, holding hands, praying? Who knows what kind of disgusting behavior they might be engaged in? Why, they might even be praying for the enemy, just like Jesus told them to. That is not good for a certain kind of morale. And by the way, he said, could you trust someone who would think it was more important to die for a cause than to kill for it? And when they have communion, what happened if they said, you cannot come to communion with blood on your hands? And who would want to shower with these people? They might try to baptize you. And that, concludes Howarus, is why gays as a group are superior to Christians as a group. Because Christians as a group don't do those things that would exclude them from the military. In that setting, he said, we are not reviled, we are not persecuted, we are not cursed. In fact, he said, it's hard to find a setting where we are. And what How Ross was saying is, has Christianity in North America become so blended with the culture, so taken over by the world's values, that we as salt and light have become insipid and we are not worth persecuting? We're so passive and so conformed to the world, the world ignores us or places us in one of their political categories or laughs at us or sees us as reactionary and hateful. 
and not caring about things like justice or racism or peace, but just growing our own little church kingdoms. The world in many ways in North America has rendered us irrelevant. If you simply blend into a fallen culture, you become salt that has lost its saltiness and light that is hidden under a basket. When you blend in too much, you are not a threat to evil, and evil does not even consider you worth the trouble of persecuting. One of the great ironies to me, which demonstrates how much we've blended the kingdom of America with the kingdom of God, is what we even sit on. Some of you are sitting on it this morning, and some of you have it in your lap or it's right in the chair beside you. You have a billfold or a purse, and in it you have cash and coins. And on that cash and coins, it is written, In God we trust. What irony. Let me tell you something. The last place Jesus would have advertised his kingdom was on the back of something that posed the greatest temptation to following him. Jesus said you cannot love God and mammon. Money in and of itself is not evil. It is a necessity, and we are called to be good stewards of it, to use it and manage it for the glory of God. If it was inherently evil, Jesus would not have let us touch it or manage it, but he calls us to do both. But the love of money, mammon, the love of money, was what Jesus saw as the greatest competitor for who or what we trusted. The last place Jesus would have written, trust me, is on the thing he said that tempts people the most not to trust him. That, and, and often Christians go, oh, this is wonderful. Look, we're a Christian nation. Look, it's on the money. I think Jesus is going, I wish it wasn't. Let me make this plain. There is a difference. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of America are vastly different. Our wars as Americans are not God's wars. Our enemies are not Christ's enemies. I've got news for you. We just heard it this morning. Jesus loves Muslims. Did you hear that? And we ought to too. In fact, God is doing a great work in the Muslim world, and He's sending another worker into the Muslim world. There are tens and tens and tens of thousands of Muslims coming to Jesus Christ. And we ought to rejoice, not figure out how to blow them up. Let me, you know, today I'm, this is my, uh, it's a holiday and there's not nearly as many people as normal. So I'm going to preach, uh, you know, my pet peeves and tick people off sermon. <laughs> I've got news for you too. While we're talking about the difference of the kingdoms, Jesus loves Mexicans. In fact, he loves undocumented Mexicans. I don't know, and let me be honest, I don't know which piece of legislation out there is the best. I suspect there's probably 50 pieces of legislation floating around Congress, and I haven't read a single one of them. I can't tell you which legislation to back. But I know, even though I can't tell you what legislation to back, I can tell you what attitude to have. And the attitude you're supposed to have, no, when you craft legislation, if you're dealing with political refugees and immigrants and undocumented people, your attitude is supposed to be compassion and mercy. Isn't that what Jesus said? He said, I was naked and you gave me 
clothes. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was in prison and you visited me. I was a stranger and you took me in. And by the way, when he said that, he literally meant it. Jesus himself early in his life was a political refugee. Remember when Herod was killing all the young men in Bethlehem and the angel appeared to Joseph and said, you got to get out of town and go to Egypt? Aren't you glad Egypt took in political refugees? We'd be in a world of trouble if they'd have shipped Jesus back to Herod, don't you think? We wouldn't be here this morning. Jesus tells us that if we do it to the least of these, to the least of these, we're doing it unto Him. Our attitude has got to be, no matter what we think, about politics going on right now. Our attitude has to be the attitude of Jesus because we belong to a kingdom greater than the kingdom we live in. We have a Lord that is greater than any president. We are part, we don't put all our, our, our apples in the basket of this world. We put our, all our apples in the basket of the one that's breaking in and coming now. Our power is spiritual. Our weapons are not carnal. We belong to another kingdom, and we are to live like it and act like it. In fact, we're supposed to be radical about it, as radical as the LGBT community is about their cause. And by the way, since 2001, a small group of radicals has changed the face of America, have they not? Or as radical as the NRA is about their cause. By the way, who has a stranglehold on American politics? We're supposed to be as radical as Christians used to be. As the Wesleyans who changed Western civilization were. As the Moravians were. As the Christians were for the first 300 years who outlasted the Roman Empire itself. I remember when Christians were radical and they changed the world. A group, even a small group of committed radicals, history has shown us, can do just that. But there's a price to it. You have to be willing. If you're going to change the world, you have to be willing to get in trouble with the world. Again, let me say, and, 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 and part of this is when I say being radical, I'm not talking about being weird. I know people who are weird and stupid, and they do it in the name of Jesus. And I just wish you wouldn't do it. If you're going to be weird and stupid, go down there and tell them you're a Jehovah's Witness. Go away. <laughs> And being reactionary and angry and hateful is not the same as being radical. You know, uh, uh, James Moore talked about, he said, I, he said, I had a cat that reminds me of Christians. He said, every time a stranger came into our house, the cat would crawl under the couch and hiss and spit at people. And he says, I know Christians who do that all the time. But neither is being passive and non-distinct from a fallen world. Neither is that what Jesus calls us to. We're, neither, we're called neither to retreat from the world nor become one with it. Jesus said, I want you in the world, but I want you not of the world. And we go to both extremes. We are either absorbed by the world, we're in the world and of the world, or we are not in this world at all. A lot of us are out of this world. Light that blends in perfectly with darkness is not light. Jesus loved and welcomed sinners. He genuinely cared without reservation. 
But Jesus never won a single sinner to the kingdom by sacrificing his integrity and his values. We have to penetrate the world in order to help it. But we must also remain radically different from the world in order to help it. We, and I want you to hear this, we must not become one with the surrounding culture in the name of love. We're called to love everybody, but we don't give up our values in the name of love. Because if we give up our values and our integrity in the name of love, we have ceased to function as salt and light. For most evangelical Christians, there's still the problem, though, of making contact with the world. For salt to be effective, it must go out of its container and into a world of hurting, suffering, dying, sinning people. During the reign of Oliver Cromwell, the, he, was, he took over, you know, uh, deposed the queen and took over, and he was very anti-religion. And the British government began to run low on silver for coins. They, this may shock you, but the government was going broke. I have never heard of that, but I heard it ha happens in ancient history, a government going broke and in deep in deficits. Cromwell sent some of his men for, to investigate the local cathedral to see if they could find any silver or precious metals. And after they investigated, they came back to Cromwell and reported, the only silver we could find is in the statues of the saints standing in the corners of the cathedral. To which Cromwell replied, good, we'll melt down the saints and put them in circulation. That's exactly what God's trying to do with us. He's trying to melt us with his love and get us out of the corners of the cathedral and put us into circulation. Salt makes no impact without contact. If, if we are not in significant contact with non-Christians, there is no way to function as salt and light as Jesus designed it. So, what does radical Christianity look like here and now? I will tell you this. Usually, it will be through small, everyday, revolutionary acts of every type. It will be with people like you and me being salt and light where we are. Martin Copenhaver is a pastor, and he was talking about radical Christianity. And so he started talking about some of the people in his, his church, and here's what he said. He said, I'm thinking of the star high school lacrosse player who misses a week of practice during spring vacation because he's with his church building homes with Habitat for Humanity. He knows that he'll have to sit out two games when he gets back. It's a usual punishment for missing practice. But when the team loses both games, the coach is quoted in the school paper as saying they lost those games because this young man didn't play. He let the team down. The coach did everything but call this young player Beelzebub to the school. That's an act, a small act of revolution. You know, and I watch, in my 36 years here as a pastor, I have watched through the years parents and their children miss three and four months in a row because of peewee soccer or swimming or football or or, or baseball, or whatever. And I, sometimes I ask these parents, I go, why do the games have to be on Sunday morning? 
Did, have you said anything about, you know, my faith and my being a part of, the, of worship it, it is important to me? Could we move them to Sunday afternoon or Saturday evening or Saturday morning? Why does it have to? Because, see, we live in a secular society that doesn't even think about Sunday morning anymore. They just schedule. And what bothers me is watching Christians wuss out. No, I don't want to talk. I don't want to say anything. It might hurt my son's starting position, or, or they might think I'm a spiritual fanatic, or they might, they might, you know, they might think I'm a troublemaker. I don't want to make trouble for, for anybody. I don't like it when radical peewee coaches, and by the way, most peewee coaches are great people trying to make a contribution to their community and stuff, but I don't like it when radical peewee coaches control non-radical Christian families. I, there's something wrong with that. Jesus is to control our lives, not some small peewee Vince Lombardi. It's not supposed to be like that. He went on to say, this pastor, he said, I'm also thinking of a woman who lives in the neighborhood where her church is establishing a home for adults with de developmental disabilities, people with Down syndrome and other mental health issues. She's, she said when she was trying to establish this home, the church was trying to the whole neighborhood has been up in arms. Property values, you know. You can't be bringing in these kind of people with, without the resale value of our house going down. And so this woman did a small act of revolution. She invited all of her neighbors over for a party. She said, come to my house. And guess who greeted them when they got to her house and served them hors d'oeuvres and were there talking to them all evening? It was those people with de developmental disabilities. Revolution. Small act of revolution. You know, and then I think he, he, he told one more example. He said there's an, a lawyer in his church who 16 years ago agreed to defend someone on death row on a pro bono basis. That's lawyer talk for free. I'm here to educate. He said that this lawyer, after 16 years of arguments and motions and appeals, finally lost his case. But during those years, he not only had contact with his client on an official basis, he became friends with his client. He wrote him regularly. He sent him pencils and chewing gum and what he could send. And when the final appeal was denied, this lawyer, this Christian lawyer, got on a plane and flew to Alabama with his 35-year-old son so that someone other than the guards and the state officials would be there when his client was executed. And when he approached the prison, there were demonstrators. And I'm quite certain some of them good old Christian demonstrators outside holding signs that condemned both the condemned prisoner and the lawyer to the fires of hell. They considered this lawyer a lover of murderers. It was meant as an insult. But as a Christian, I hope he saw it as a badge of honor. Because Jesus loved murderers and violent revolutionaries and sinners of every type. And trust me, there is sins of every type in this room right now. I'm going to start naming names. Ah! 
I've told people when I retire, I'm going to write a book and I'm going to see, do I get more money for publishing it or not publishing it? We'll have to see. <laughs> Woo! Like I said, I'm in a ticking off mood here. Here we go. If you follow Jesus, you will get in trouble. Even if you're an ordinary person doing ordinary things, if you tell people the truth in love, if you do these small acts of revolution, you will get in trouble. And please don't disparage small. The little incursions and inroads, the small glimpses, the cracks in the establishment, that's where most of the light comes from. We think it's got to be Billy Graham with the big spotlight. Most of the light that shines into this world comes from people like you and me shining through the cracks. Jesus reminds us that God likes to work with small things, things like mustard seeds and pinches of salt and teaspoons of yeast and sparrows. This is how the kingdom comes. And while I'm at it, I just, you know, sometimes, again, when the blending, while I am here telling you things that tick me off because, you know, it's a holiday and the crowd's small, while I'm here telling you this, I, one of the things that bothers me the most with the, is when I hear people go, I praise God for the right to worship in freedom without persecution. I, once a year, I take an opportunity to go at Easter to do just that. Or, you know, I just praise the Lord for the opportunity to worship in freedom every three months. I'm going, if you treasure this so much, why do you not take an opportunity more often than what you do? So let me ask you again. Have you gotten in trouble lately for Jesus? Have you been the salt that stings someone's worldly sensibilities? The light that makes someone uncomfortable? Despite being loving while you're doing it? Are you worth persecuting? There are people in this church who have done all kinds of things that make a difference. In general, you know, I would, I would uh, when I look at how people try to live their lives in this church and make a difference where they are and being salt and light, I, I just, I well up with pride. I, I think at least 90% of you really are trying to make a difference. And the 10% of you will be in the book. And... Uh, <laughs> But let me give you a couple of examples of salt and light from this church. Nicolette Snell is a counselor at John Harris High School. Nicolette now is gathering together teachers and staff from John Harris High School before classes start to pray for John Harris High School. Does that make you feel better? They are praying that the light will shine. They are praying these kids, that cycles will be broken. They are praying that friendships can form and that will change lives. They are praying for the kingdom to come in some way through the cracks at John Harris High School. Praise God for Nicolette Snell. Is Nicolette here today? Are you here? I'm sure my check will be in the mail. Anyway, the, the, and I'll give you one more example. Faith Zerker. Faith Zerker actually listened to one of my sermons and did something about it. I was talking about inviting neighbors and stuff and, and, and getting to know them and praying for them and seeing what the Spirit would do. Well, she invited nine of her closest neighbors to come to her house 
for a party. Three actually accepted the invitation, and they had the party. The other six declined, but she went and talked to each one of them individually and formed relationships with them. She is praying. She is inviting. She is partying in the good way, and she is hoping to see the Spirit move in the lives of these people. Praise the Lord. Now, this is not spectacular. Again, this is not something that, that, that's going to end up on the news, but this is how the kingdom comes. If enough of us do this, if enough of us are salt and light, the kingdom comes, the light shines, the salt rubs in. You know, again, I ask, are we worth persecuting? You know, because some of us go, well, I don't want to invite my neighbors. They might think I'm weird. Or Nikolai could have gone, you know, you know, there's this, there's, you know, there's all the, I might get in trouble for praying on school grounds. I don't want to, you have to take small risks for the kingdom. And so, you know, and well, what if I'm persecuted? Jesus says, so what if you're persecuted? Jesus, you know, it's, it, I have to be honest with you. I hear people going all the time, oh, oh. Christianity, it's, a, it's on the ebb in America, and, and, and we're being persecuted. I got, and you know what I say to them? I say, you don't know what persecution is. If you're not in prison, or if you're not being tortured, or if you're not being killed, or if you're not losing all your property or job, you're not being persecuted. Just because somebody is taking away Christian privileges that have lasted from the start of this country, loss of privilege is not the same as persecution Boy, I'm getting a lot. I'm feeling better. This is therapeutic. Anyway, and besides that, besides that, a little persecution would do a church that has become sleepy and seduced and blending into the culture. Like It would do us a world of good, to be honest. It would do us a world of good. It would clarify commitments. It would purify hearts. It would unleash the power in the church, and we could become the radical counterculture we're supposed to be. I'm not afraid. I, I, don't get me wrong. I don't want persecution. I don't want bad things to happen to anybody. But from a historical, biblical point, if you study church history and you study the movements of God and you study revival and you study the Bible, persecution is probably the best thing that could ever happen to a church. I see people get, waving their hankies in joy. <laughs> Often, after knowing the Lord for two years, the average Christian in this country has no significant friendships or relationships with non-Christians. Did you know that? Let me ask you, do you have a significant friendship where you spend time regularly with, with a non-Christian? I don't. Our conversions... All right, come on up to the altar. We'll get to... No, I... <laughs> Our conversion opens us up to a whole new web of relationships, and the new Christian usually drifts from his non-Christian Christian friends and ends up, unfortunately, almost entirely in an evangelical ghetto. And the tragedy is that when that happens, we stop being the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Salt in a salt shaker doesn't work. Salt shaker may be beautiful, and the salt may be pure, but if you don't get out of the salt shaker, it does nobody any good. Let me ask you, is there any non-Christian right here this morning who would mourn your death? 
Is there? I had some, but they killed themselves with alcohol and drugs, and, and I wonder if I should, I should have done more. Is there anyone outside of church with whom your friendship is important? Is there anyone who you currently share your life with outside of the kingdom? A true mark of a Christian is not withdrawal, it's contact. It's in the world, but not of it. One of my favorite poems, it might be my favorite poem, and I'm concluding this sermon with this, is by George MacLeod. And I want to read it to you as the conclusion of this sermon. He says this, I simply argue that the cross be raised again at the center of the marketplace as well as on the steeple of the church. I am recovering the claim that Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves, on a town garbage heap, at a crossroad of politics so cosmopolitan they had to write his title in Hebrew and in Latin and in Greek, and at the kind of place where cynics talk smut and thieves curse and soldiers gamble. Because that is where he died. And that is what he died about. And that is where Christ's people ought to be. And what, the, and what church people ought to be about. Are we salt and light? Are we where people curse and gamble and talk smut? Are we where salt and light is needed the most? At this time, I want, to, I want you to bow your heads. And I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to guide you about where you need to be salt and where you need to be light. What relationships? What relationships? What stand do you need to take somewhere? Where is the salt the opportunity to, where's the opportunity to shine in your life that will make a difference in somebody's life somewhere, somehow, with family, friends, neighbors, job? Holy Spirit, guide us now. Guide us now. And give us the wisdom to know where you want us to shine. Lord Jesus, show us 
if we should pick up a phone and call somebody with encouraging words. Show us if we need to say no to something or someone. Show us, Lord, our fears that stop us from bringing in the kingdom where we are. Show us, Jesus, where we can make a tremendous difference if we would be willing to do one small thing and then do it again and again. Lord, help us to pray and walk in your Spirit and let your Spirit show us. Let your Spirit show us where we can be revolutionaries for the kingdom. In often often ordinary and unspectacular ways, but ways that change the world when multiplied by your Spirit. Help us, Jesus, to reflect your light into very dark places. Help us, Jesus, to touch places that are rotting and bring healing, and flavor. Help us, Jesus. Help us to be radical again. Lord, there has not been a revival since the mid-1800s that really shook up North America. It's been a long time, Lord. It's been about a hundred and 70 years, 175 years, Lord, send a revival that unleashes the radical nature of your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.